All right. Well, welcome again, uh, everyone here on this Reformation Day. Uh, welcome again, everyone at home. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this new idea that a lot of uh, businesses are doing, particularly kind of creative IT businesses, where they are getting rid of policies for their employees, uh, where they're getting rid of a lot of their rules and things in their manuals. Uh, Netflix, for example, is one of those great cases. Uh, I know their stock is kind of going down. They're having some problems now. But um, they were one of the first ones to really make a big deal out of not having uh, some of these policies. For example, they don't have a vacation policy. Uh, you can take as much vacation as you want. Uh, they don't have a time off policy. Uh, they don't even have a travel policy in their manual. Now, I know when you hear that, when you hear that, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? I know the first thing that went through my mind is, someone's going to show up to work one day a year and then take a flight to Rome and stay in the most expensive suite and eat steak and lobster all day long and build a company and sit back and go, suckers, right? Because we all can probably think, if you've ever worked in a business, you probably can even think of the person who you would think was the one who you knew would do that, right? And, and, you know, and, that, and that's what you would think would happen. But the guy, the CEO of Netflix, he wrote a whole book on this called The No Rules Rules. Uh, and, of course, give it a good co corporate subtitle, The Culture of Reinvention. Ooh. Um, but in it, he talks about how he developed this big company without all those rules and how he did it. Um, and he first starts telling the story about how when he started out, he had a little tech startup. And I don't even remember what they did. But it was a small company. You know how it always is when you're starting out something new, right? You got a small number of people. Everything's kind of freewheeling. But everyone's on board. You know, you don't have a lot of rules. You probably have a ping pong table in the break room. You know, and, uh, and, and everything's great, right? And so they started growing a little bit. And what did he do? He, he, did, he hadn't established all these rules. And so one of his guys went and took off to, I think it was like Hong Kong, right? And sure enough, there was that one guy booked the big first class ticket to Hong Kong, stayed in the fancy hotel, and, and then immediately everyone else in the company is like, this guy just wasted all our money. What do we do? So what they do? They started creating policies. Now we got a travel policy and an expense policy and a reimbursement policy. And, and then they had that policy. Well, then if he did that, then, then he said, what was interesting is he said, once they started making policies, then everybody started kind of like backbiting each other. Well, that one didn't do that. And that one did that. So then came the time off policy. Then came the day policy. Then came the, and pretty soon they had this big, thick policy manual. And he said, what was interesting was, the creative people, that bright talent that he had at the startup, they started disappearing. They started going somewhere else. And when he'd ask them why, he says, I want, they'd be like, I want to be in an environment where I'm trusted. This, you guys don't trust me anymore. Now everything I do, I've got to pass a, through, jump through all these hoops. You know, I can go to this other startup over there and do that. Everything got, le everything got more tense. It got less creative, and so what did he do? He sold, off, he sold off that business and then went and started Netflix and determined that when he started Netflix, he was going to do it differently, that this was going to be more based on things like relationships of trust, on, on sort of an agreement on where we were going to go, 
and I know there's lots of questions that come up, like how do you keep people? How do you keep that one guy from running up that huge travel expense? And they have systems of accountability built in. You know, they say when you try to do a new idea, you're supposed to sort of stress test it, for example. But at the end of the day, he says, what we expect you to do is do what's in the best interest of the company. And is that first class plane in the best interest of the company? And he said he did have to fire some people who couldn't handle the freedom, right? But he said he refused to become policy driven just because of those few bad apples. And for, at least for a while, it really, really worked, right? Uh, and Netflix ended up coming up with things like Stranger Things and whatnot. Um, because, you know, if you're looking for a way to try to overbill, then really your heart's not in the right place to begin with, right? Then you're not on board with what the company's doing, then you're just trying to get for you what's you, right? And he, even he admits that this doesn't work in every field and it doesn't work in every department. His finance department is not a creative environment. You know, it's got rules and regulations and policies, so that's what it is. And he said in environments where people have to worry about safety, right, you have to have that kind of thing. But if you want creativity, if you want innovation, you have to have an environment of trust. Now, I was interested in this, not because I'm going to design my own, you know, streaming business, but because the idea, the idea fascinated me because it's a big idea that I, it's been a debate through churches, but it's been a debate in Christianity, sort of a fundamental debate for centuries, which is whether we think that people are fundamentally good enough that they can be trusted with a, a degree of freedom to do what is good and holy and to follow Jesus, or whether, uh, whether we are so hopelessly sinful and depraved, and, and there's actually a doctrine called total depravity. There's actually books you can read by theologians and pastors saying that we are totally depraved. I'm like, wow, I want to go to that. I want to go to a church of total depravity church, right? <laughs> Every week, it's like, you are a sinner. Your every desire is evil to the core, you know? But Jesus loves you, Right? You're kind of saying dual message, but that, that's a thing. But do we believe that people can be trusted to follow Jesus for most of the time, or do we believe that we are so sinful and depraved that, that, that if we don't have sort of all sorts of laws and rules and authorities, that we're all just going to go off and plunder and pillage and it's bacchanalias everywhere? Is that, is that what we believe? So, you go back to the Bible. You look at the Bible, how does it start? We only start with two rules. In Genesis, there's only two rules. Don't eat that tree, don't eat that tree. That's it. Everything else was legal. There's a lot of stuff you could fill in in that space, right? In Life of the Garden, you, you would have think this would have been paradise. Ignorance is bliss, right? Only two rules. And what did the people do? God to figure out a way to break them. And why did they want to break the rule? Because they wanted to know what the rules were. They wanted to know right from wrong and good from bad. And, and, and like, why did you want to know that? You, you don't even know the rules. But no, no, we couldn't be happy with that. Right? So then out of the garden you go. Out of the garden you go. And in a few generations, the laws started piling up. Right? People couldn't handle it. It started out with just ten laws. 
right? God gets people out of Egypt, gives them ten laws. What's the first thing they do when they get ten laws? They have a giant bacchanalia and they make a golden idol. Wow, great. So what does God do? God piles 613 more laws on top of it. That's how many laws are on the Old Testament. 623 laws. You would think, <laughs> with so many laws, that, that every possible bad impulse would be so hemmed in and controlled and regulated that it would be just utopia, right? Everybody would be, the next chapters of the Bible would be everybody being just loving and kind and bad things wouldn't happen, right? Wrong. Read Joshua, Judges, if, if you, you know, it's nothing but war and fighting and blood and guts and holy mackerel. So God gives them all these laws and things get worse. The opposite happened. And, they kept, and then they kept finding ways around the laws. So when they weren't fighting each other, they, they were trying to split hairs. They would do things like say, well, you know, the law says I have to sacrifice an animal a certain way. It doesn't say I can't charge too much interest. So maybe I'll charge too much interest and build people out of their land. You know? And then the prophets are coming along going, you're not clearly not getting the point here. But I think it goes back to that idea that if you tell people they can't be trusted, they'll rise, maybe I should say fall, to the occasion. Call your teenager untrustworthy, spy on them all the time, never leave them any choices, track every move, and see, see if they rise to the occasion of being troublemakers when you treat them like they're troublemakers. Back in my hometown, there was always this sort of mythology. I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't the only place. There was sort of this mythology among the old-timers. You know, every generation always complains about the kids these days, right? Kids these days. My kids, my kids do the same thing with me. They're like, come on, Dad, it wasn't that great in the 90s. I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> but when in the 90s, the old-timers, they were remembering the 50s, the 60s. And they would get together and they would complain, kids these days, they just don't get into trouble. And, you know, we wouldn't have these problems if, if we did like my dad did. We got a whooping. You know, when I did something wrong, he had a belt, and he'd whoop me with a belt. And when I mouthed off to that teacher, I'd go to the principal, and he had a paddle. And he'd, be, he'd tell me, bend over, and I'd get paddled and paddled. And he'd say, do you want me to paddle you, or do you want me to call your dad? Because I knew your dad would paddle you. And so he'd beat me so hard, I was sore for a week. And we loved it. <laughs> I mean, that, and then you'd go, okay, okay. Um, so the good, in the good old days... People beat the tar out of their kids for doing things wrong, and teachers beat them up. I mean, I had a teacher, I, I had a principal one time, a guy was making, a guy was sitting in the back of the class, made fun of the teacher like this, was making some weird gesture. P principal walks in, sees him, grabs him by the ear, twists his ear, and drags him out. I was going, ah, like this. And then the kid growls at the principal, and he goes, I'm telling your dad, bucko. 1987. This stuff still went on. So you, so, okay. So they said this was the good old days, right? We had weapons and beatings and whips and belts and iron maidens and whatever we used on our kids. We got them in shape, right? So then you go to the bar at night. What do they talk about? All the rules they broke. Remember? They'll take out their Miller Lite, you know? 
Remember that time when we went with Jack Jimmy's 30 or 62 El Camino? We all rode on the top of it. And we took out there and Billy Skerich had this bat. We knocked all those baseballs out. Whoa, we were chugging them down while we did it. Remember, we went out back behind Day Lake and we went 150 miles an hour. Woo, it was awesome. And I'm like, you jacked cars. You drove under the influence. You drank underage. You smashed mailboxes, which is a federal offense. You drove so fast you could have killed everybody. Wow, guess you didn't get enough whoopings. <laughs> what am I missing here? You're bragging about how much fun it was to break all the rules at the same time that you're complaining the kids these days don't follow the rules. What am I missing? And then you start to realize that what really is important to these guys is they don't like the kids mouthing off or disrespecting them. Whether they get into trouble, eh, but you know, that's what this whooping stuff is all about. And it was all a big game, right? It was all a big game. They, oh, the man, they couldn't wax eloquent enough about the crimes they'd committed in the 60s, right? And I'm sitting there going, maybe we need a different methodology. You know, maybe we need to raise our kids to want to do good, to have a better direction in their lives, a better understanding of right and wrong and compassion for others so that we won't need, you know, whips and belts and whatever else to get them to not carjack and smash mailboxes and all this stuff. I mean, maybe kids really do want to do good and can be trusted in doses, right? And that showing them that they can be trusted will actually cause most of them to rise to the occasion. I'll trust you with the house, car, computer, whatever. We'll see if you can handle it. Right? Are you adult enough to handle it? Can you rise to the occasion? Some will blow it. Some will abuse it. There will always be some. right? But I think if you teach good values and have that strong relationship and have those lived values, people can be more trusted than you think. I mean, they'll still probably crash the car. That's like a rite of passage in our family. I rolled the van, the other one smashed the Buick. It all, we all do it, right? But, getting back to the Bible. After hundreds of years of people being told, or sort of people officially following the law while finding ways to break the intent of the law, along comes the prophet Jeremiah. Right? This is our Old Testament reading. Here we go. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The old covenant had a default of mistrust, rules, regulations, process, policy. The new covenant will be written in your heart. It will be based on a relationship with God, a connection that is a part of who you are. So it doesn't have to be written and given back to you, but it's something that you do and give back to the world. This is the new covenant, the no rules rules God. 
And we forget this happened 600 years before Jesus was born. Because by the time of Jesus, they'd fallen right back into the rules. And not only did they have rules, but they had books to explain the rules, and they had books to explain the rules that explained the rules. And so they just, the library just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger as they tried to legislate absolutely every little detail. And along came Jesus, right? Having to tell them that if your hearts and your minds truly love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, then you don't need to be splitting hairs over whether you can or cannot put a screen over the jug of wine when you pour it on the Sabbath. There's a chapter on that. You can read it. And, and they conclude that you're supposed to put the screen on before sundown. But you definitely can pour the wine because you don't want the bugs in it. Okay. Sure. All right. We talk about this on Reformation Sunday, a day like today, because in essence, this is a large part of what this day is about. And this is one of the main problems that Martin Luther and the other reformers ran into with the Catholic Church of that day. And one of the things that happens when Luther was being Mr. Junkel Jorg and hiding, he translated the whole Bible, which was an amazing feat. He did the whole thing in German in one year, all 66 books. Um, and he turned them in, translated them into German, and his plan was to give them out to the people so the people could read the Bible and the people could, you know, go sort of directly to God. And at the time, the Pope of his time and the cardinals of his time said, Luther, if you do that, if you give the people the, the power to have control over their own spiritual lives, they will all become atheists and decadent. That's what's going to happen. They're all, that's what they're all going to choose. And so Luther replied with one of the greatest lines from all his books. I'm going to quote this here. It's on, it's on an article called The Treatise on Christian Liberty. And he says, A Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Now I know that sounds a little bit kind of like spiritual guru paradoxy kind of talk, but... What he's saying, I think, is really profound. Maybe his best quote. A Christian is given freedom from rules, but is also given the burden of the responsibility to love and serve everyone like Jesus did. And to love and serve like Jesus, to be a servant of all, is a million times harder than to follow all the rules. To think that in every situation, every action, your job is always to love and serve all the people around you. That leaves no loophole for being a jerk. That means that I am convicted even when I drive down Ina Road and I cut someone off. And I thank God I didn't put a Jesus sticker on the back of my car. But God is watching us. Bette Midler told me that. All right. It's like Luther is bringing up Jeremiah's new covenant and Jesus' talk about all this leader, to be the leader of all, you must be servant of all. That people who seek to love and to serve God in their heart, in their mind, in their soul, that they can be trusted to make ethical decisions in an ever-changing world. And this has to be one of the key things that we, as ELCA Lutherans, that we've tried to do as a denomination, which is to cultivate relationships of trust in our churches. 
that you, we have rules and policies. It's not as many as you think. It, you know, fits a few pages. But we're not like some congregations or whatever that have just lots and lots of rules, and the rules are super important. We, we don't try to spell everything out exactly, but we try to cultivate a relationship of trust with each other and with God. Our social teachings are not designed to be do's and don'ts and, and lines that, oopsie, you crossed it, now you know, now you got to do X, Y, Z. Our social teachings are designed to give a background so that you can make these moral and ethical decisions in your own situations, which puts a lot of trust in people. And yes, sometimes some people will abuse that trust. But I just refuse to turn the church into a giant rule book because of a few bad apples. I would rather you be free to be a servant of all, Martin Luther says, than to have to dictate every bit of your life. In an atmosphere of relationship with Jesus, with one another, and trust in our ability to follow God with our heart and our soul and our mind. It's one of the things that I think makes us unique. In a world of churches where everything's perceived as being about do's and don'ts, we do believe in sin, but we don't teach that we're totally depraved and that, but for rules, we'd all be monsters. That's part of being a Lutheran, is freedom. Freedom, Jesus freed us. I cherish it, I teach it. And I believe it's what Jesus intended for us to live. Amen.